Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Scott Killaby. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> Scott and I did an interview about a year and a half ago, um, December of 2010, and those listening to this may wish to listen to that one also, either before or after you listen to this one. And uh, I also met Scott out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in California, and he's one of these people that you sort of feel like he's a buddy, like you've known him for a long time. And I, I see a lot of people comment, making comments like that, that they appreciate your kind of down-to-earthness and a, approachability and so on, So, and I appreciate that too. Um, Scott is a recovering attorney. And, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, he was an, a professional attorney, but these days is devoting his full attention to his teaching, which is multifaceted and I would say very practical and down to earth. Um, a lot of times in, I mean, Scott identifies himself as a non dual teacher, but a lot of times in non dual circles, um, there's not a lot of attention or importance given to practical considerations like relationships and financial problems and, you know, all the various real world situations that people live. Uh, those things are often dismissed as illusory or you know not worthy of our attention because there's no one to have such problems. Therefore, why should we dwell on the problems and so on? Uh, but um, you you seem to have managed to nicely integrate the whole spectrum of uh, you know the non-dual with the actual living of life. Yeah, I mean, I didn't plan it that way. I think it just came out of necessity, really. Um, part of it being my own path, having come from addiction, a lot of addiction. Um, just sort of having a kind of a first recognition of non-dual reality didn't necessarily uh, stomp out all of the little demons within me and, and also didn't stomp out not that the point is to stomp things out but it also I saw little things in relationship not only in my own relationships but with other uh, people and teachers frankly who would have quiet moments with me about how they were getting stuck here and there and so I thought, what you know, there's no rule against talking about this other stuff. That's the thing. And nothing outlaws it, so why not? Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody has ever had a sort of a non-dual re realization that instantly and miraculously wipes out all their conditioning and all their, you know, all their quirks and idiosyncrasies and, you know, potential hang-ups and so on. Just doesn't work that way. No, I mean I've not met that person yet. Yeah, and even people in my experience um, who have had much more than a glimpse of non-dual, you know, are really solidly established in, you know, profound non-dual realization twenty-four-seven. Uh, in talking to some of those people, in fact, in in my interviews, I, even they say. Hey, I'm still working through stuff. You know, I'm a human being. I still, I can still make mistakes. I have my hang-ups. I'm, I, I, and my even my non-dual realization seems to be getting deeper and more profound as I go along. No telling where it's going, but you know, life is a mystery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the same thing I found doing so many interviews with other teachers is that there's the there's the teaching of the message that's put out there, which is one thing. But then, how is it moving? moment by moment in one's life. That's the other thing. And so sometimes that's shared and sometimes it's not. And it's always nice to have those moments where someone will just kind of put it out on the table for you and say, this is what's, you know, this is what's really has happened and what's going on. And then I think it opens up a deeper discussion. For me, it's a deeper discussion about um, 
you know, just how deep this can go and what this is all about. That's a fascinating. Let's talk about that today. That's a, that fascinates me too. Um, and uh, you know, I guess that ra- it raises a question: Is there any practical significance to non-dual realization? Um, does it does the rubber meet the road in terms of you know your relationships and your you know your business acumen or whatever, uh, or is it just a kind of something that is intrinsic intrinsically fulfilling or or you know self-realization without actually impacting your relative life and i've heard people actually argue both uh, perspectives i mean i have to stick to my own experience uh obviously uh, just in terms of the just since i mentioned addiction um it had a huge impact but but again there were little eddies that kind of would hang around for a while and just by seeing through that identification the stickiness of thought and feeling and how those get sort of hooked together or thought and sensation which were, which were making the cravings for things just seeing through that had I guess you could say a benefit uh-huh. um, if we answer every question like that to say there's no self to benefit then it's a non-starter <laughs> right. so, so I would just say yeah we can speak openly there is a benefit that, that I've seen if you look at the appearance of my life you would see that I'm not swallowing 10 painkillers at a time mm. uh, so that's a benefit to the body here so were you still in the throes of addiction when you had a non-dual realization and, and that kind of helped kick you out of the addictive uh, behavior I was in the throes of seeking I was clean at that time from my main drug but there was still addiction in all these different areas mm-hmm. um, and so seeking enlightenment was its own kind of addiction the way that I was seeking it back then so yeah, and so this this message was the only thing that really helped me on on that deeper level. Helped me me meaning less identification with thought and feeling, more of allowing that to come through fluidly, and and not getting hung up on that so much. And that's where all the addiction came from, and that's where all the relationship stickiness was in. I noticed, mm. but it, I didn't always have the tools to 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 use. So the teaching, if you will, has just been several years of working with people one-on-one and then seeing what works and what doesn't work and then finding something that works and it's like, well, just stick with that. You know? mm-hmm. So um, so let's talk about that a little bit. So what have you found that works? And let's define what we mean by works. Um, it, I guess it depends on whether we're talking about relationship or addiction, although you could say that they're very similar in a certain way. They can be. Uh, what, I mean, what I found for myself was, since we're talking about relationship today, is, at least I think we are, is, um, again, people were contacting me, and what they were, when, when we really got honest, what they were really saying, if you listen to them, they were saying, I'm seeking. But if you, if you ask them more about that, it gets down to a view of self that's something to do with I'm, I'm not good enough or I'm not there yet or I'm unheard, unacknowledged, imperfect, inadequate. So it's that, that self-sense that they're trying to reach outside of themselves to fix and make better or make whole. And so what I found that works was just to go directly to the root and to say, well, who is it that you take yourself to be in this relationship? So if it's your relationship with your boss, your relationship with your wife, um, 
the focus is always on the other person, usually. Mm-hmm. So it's like she's not doing this, or when he says that, or he shouldn't be doing that. You know, the focus is there, and so when I got people just to stop that focus long enough and to see, you know, you're not looking at it objective. We don't look objectively. That's one of the things that I've seen. We don't see things objectively, which is kind of a nice thing to know because if you operate on the idea that you do see things objectively then you'll think that every one of our judgments and everything about other people are just sort of spot on like a bird's eye view. Right. And instead I got people to just turn around and sort of take the finger from there to here. And so to make the self being a blind spot, the way that that self is showing up in a particular relationship is like a blind spot. And so by pointing the finger back and you give a name to the kind of self you think exists in that relationship, not just the self, which is general, but oh, yeah, I'm the loser, or, oh, yeah, well, I've always felt inadequate, or I feel small, or I'm, I'm jealous, so he makes me feel like I'm not good enough. So when you put that on it and you give it a flavor like that, and then you ask people very directly to find that, to find the self that's not good enough, and then I just started taking people through this inquiry where I would just sort of relentlessly go back to that question, but also guide them through it because it's such a if you do those kinds of inquiries on your own sometimes it can just meander in so many different directions so I I learned of a way of just sort of focusing and saying okay so just look at the words I'm not good enough imagine them written on the wall in front of you with graffiti or something and just look at those words and listen to your body you know let your body tell you what you really think And so are those words themselves the person who's not good enough Mm -hmm. and if people would say no those are just words well then that could just relax and then we'd go looking for the the self that's not good enough but if when I found that people would say yes it was almost like a rule what they were saying was is that my body is saying yes Mm -hmm. my body feels like contracted or afraid or to give a description so then I would take them into the body and get them to look at unconscious pictures in the body like for example contraction would just have a picture of the chest you'd see a picture of the chest and they've never been asked that question is that picture of the chest if you close your eyes and look at that is that a person who's not good enough and so you know eventually people see no that's that's not it and then they get down to the raw feeling that wounded feeling that they're feeling and then when they sit with that and they let that just be as it is they they find that it's it's actually okay. Their, their mind has been running from that all their life, but if they set with that, and then I just say, is that energy, just the energy without words and pictures, is that the person who's not good enough? And if they see it's not the person, not the person who's not good enough, it just sort of they can they can just be with it, and then it just sort of works itself out. But then I found that in the body there are all sorts of things that come up. So they might like there might be a feeling there, and then it's like a picture of their mother comes up, hmm. you know, or or a word that says, "But I really am a loser." Those words will come up, and so that's what I call the Velcro effect. Anytime thoughts or feel stuck to emotions or sensations, thoughts or pictures, so I would just pull those thoughts up, and I would say, "Well, look at that. I really am a loser. Put that on, on the wall." Hmm. You know, are those words the person who's not good enough? And they would say, well, no, those are actually just words. So I'd say, you know, scan the body again. And so I just went through this, really letting the person guide me 
until we got to this place where they couldn't find the person who's not good enough. And that itself is amazing. If you believed all your life that you, not just a self, but this other thing that I'm a self that's not good enough, then I would have them look back at the person in relationship. And I'd say, how does that person look now? And they're like, fine, actually. That, that's, that's, I see that's just an image too, but that there's no trigger for me now. As I, so just working with people several times with that, I found that it sort of would uproot really deep stuff that we've been carrying around ever since mom and dad, you know, or even, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I read a good portion of your book, Living a Relationship, and, you know, it, it's, it's full of these uh, transcripts, really, of, of sessions you've done with people where you're going through the kind of process you just described. Yeah. And it's, it's really remarkable to see, you know, how many aha experiences people have while going through a process like that. It's like, uh, you know, there's these ingrained assumptions, habituated assumptions that they've been living with for years, and you, you're able to kind of, just by turning their attention in the 180 degrees, uh, to break through those, at least momentarily. And uh, it's a real, it's a real kind of a revelation for some people. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, it, for, first of all, I did the inquiries with myself. Mm-hmm. So I, before I ever did it with anybody else, because my my sort of underlying story was I'm unlovable. That's the story. I didn't even know that I had that story. Oh, everybody was, loves you, Scott. Don't worry. Yeah, about yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But that's the point, because even if people seem like they love you, you can still feel like right. It's <laughs> unlovable. So. I did it on that for a long time and I was like wow this is like I can't believe the depth of freedom from this core story mm-hmm. and so then it was, then I felt comfortable you know taking it to other people mm-hmm. before I and I, just to give credit I, I started with it, this unfindability with Greg Good and yeah. a more complicated a version of it or you know from Majama Kabuddhism mm-hmm. and so this is not that it's a sort of a modification of it mm-hmm. uh, so just so people don't think I'm doing the same inquiry as that style. Yeah. Um, how um, permanent are these insights that the people you work with seem to have? Do they go right back and forget about it and get caught up in the same old habits, or is there a significant shift that seems to stick? You know, it depends. I've found that that story, that uh, deficiency story, is pretty strong. It's been going on since, you know, some people say before you were born, in your past life or whatever, or your past lives, or at least since, since mom or dad had that look or that yell, or the classmate said something to you or whatever it is. So it's a really strong story, and it tends to come out in relationship. You know, that's what I found. It's, so one could be clear and then walk into the next room and buy back into the pattern. But what I found is I've trained like probably 35 people to be facilitators of this those people hit these inquiries really hard for a while there was a period of time where they just hit this inquiry and they're all experiencing tremendous freedom in what do you mean what do you mean they hit it really hard you mean they really practiced it diligently or intensively and yeah it, yeah it, the way that we talk about the inquiry is like it's something that you take with you mm-hmm. so that you so that you start treating relationship differently it's not something to avoid it's not. It's all the painful feelings that are coming up. A lot of times, people will just say, um, kind of disregard it or something. But that actually becomes the way in which you op- open to freedom. And so, well, people that take this on will normally start to say at some point that they find that relationship is itself its own awakening. Mm-hmm. You know. And so it depends. Some people I've met with, and they 
have done it one time and they found freedom and then they go back into the pattern yeah and just don't pick it up again yeah it's like anything else i mean you can learn to meditate and have a profound experience with it but if you don't do it regularly you're not going to have that sort of long-term tr- physiological really transformation that that needs to take place for you know, any kind of pr- significant um uh progress to be made or change to be made yeah i mean practice has somewhat become of a dirty a dirty word in certain circles but what i found is like you said the depth of it it goes all the way into your body it goes all the way down to your you know if you stay with it um and what i found with the inquiries like most good practices is that it becomes part of your system and it doesn't feel like practice after a while it feels like something very natural you're looking into the nature of who you think you are as it gets triggered in relationship so it's something it's almost like your system starts doing it automatically uh just as you start seeing it's really based on the mirror of relationships so you start seeing that mirror that's happening like krishnamurti said Mm -hmm. and then you and then the inquiry because you've already taken it in is already seeing through the thing that's being projected out in the cell so yeah at the beginning it starts as a practice and one has to actually i guess you could say make themselves do it Mm -hmm. but after a while it becomes much more natural it becomes just part of your experience seems to me that the people who feel that practice is a dirty word are usually those who feel that they're, ref- they're for referring to practices which seem to reinforce uh, the sense of doership um, or individuality or which, um, I don't know, keep one in perpetual seeking mode or, or something like that. But, you know, if you look at just about anything in life, learning to play the violin or, you know, ski or or do anything you know there's a and we all have fingers i mean i could be a concert pianist but (laughs) theoretically but if i don't learn practice then i don't rewire the physiology in such a way that that becomes a natural thing for me and i you know i don't know if you agree but i think that the same is true not only with relationship stuff and uh which you were talking about here but even with realization there's a there's a physiological rewiring that has to take place you know if you hooked ramana maharshi up to an eeg machine you might see very different brain waves than with the average person and and that just doesn't turn on a dime you know it doesn't happen instantaneously and and uh it may for some people but i think for the if it doesn't then it may be uh that practices of some sort are of value yeah, and so one of the things that the facilitators that we sort of trained each other to do is the first thing is, is just to look into the seeker or look into the one who feels like they have to do inquiry. Let that be the first self that you find. Mm-hmm. And as they see they can't find that, there's more of a relaxation into present, which is always already here, presence. Mm-hmm. And then from there you're doing an exploration. So it's not so much as like I'm doing the inquiries to get to point B. Right. You're actually seeing through that self that wants to go through from A to B, um, that's doing all the seeking and and feeling inadequate and not good enough yet and all that stuff. But yeah, it's definitely a practice in the sense that, like you said, there's you know there's there's a possibility of a really deep deep recognition. You know, that goes it is physiological, but as I say, you know, it goes all the way down to the pelvis and lower, mm-hmm. goes all the way through. And if you notice in relationship is where the stuff from the gut and the stomach come up often. And so that's energy there that gets released through the inquiries or any good practice really. 
is so that your actually body feels more and more transparent, which is where you start to feel love and peace and and all that stuff that people want for the stability of their lives, I think is down here. The whole thing about non-seeking, I have a lot of compassion about that because I was such an intense seeker. <laughs> I really do. Um, I think there are two dangers in it. One is that mind tells itself that all is. So it just sort of says, well, it sort of relabels present experience and says it's all oneness or it's all. But meanwhile, there's suffering going on below the surface which the person is either honest about or not. And uh, the second thing is, is one can have an awakening experience that is very freeing and that, that feels very much like freedom. And yet, even that can be a bit of a cover-up job because the one even takes the identity that I'm, I'm now awakened. And then if you ask the people around them what's really going on, they're going to say, well, not so much really. I mean, yeah. There's, some, there's definitely a clarity there, but the relationship's rather sticky, actually, in a lot of ways. Mm. So that's what I mean. It's like the whole topic of just being honest about what's really going on, you know, it starts us a discussion. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of good points in what you just said. Um, your your reference to the gut kind of reminded me of Adyashanti, who talks about head, heart, gut levels of realization, you know. And uh, it sounded like you were saying that... Um, you know, working out this deep relationship stuff and habitual uh, hang-ups around relationships uh, could clear away a lot of the the garbage in the gut, so to speak, so as to maybe facilitate a more of a gut-level realization of of non-duality. Yeah. And and then the second point you made about um, you know people having a realization and then kind of uh, assuming that it's ultimate or that they're realized or something like that and perhaps that seeking is over and there's nothing more to do can in itself be a pitfall and Adyashanti talks about that too as a matter of fact he talks about how you know even a taste of realization can be so gratifying that one it can kind of convey the 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 feeling or the the conviction that this is it you know this is the whole enchilada (laughs) whereas there's actually much more to be realized yeah, I mean, there are different schools about that. You know, I think after, through the years, I've just gotten to the point where it's like I just want to be authentic to what interests me and to what, and not doing it based on what other people say or what it's supposed to be. You know, because for a while, I think I, I sort of fell into a, an absolutistic phase, and I felt like it was like a shell that I had to come out of in order just to be true to my own experience. Mm-hmm. And so being true to this is what feels right. You know, yeah. talk about this is what feels right. So yeah, I mean, definitely that can that can happen. You know, we're we're in this life, so why not? You know, take a look at some things. I mean, why? Because this is what we say about the inquiries: is that if you when you no longer use them as a tool to get to somewhere later in your story, you use mm-hmm. them as a present exploration from that already awake, that just the experience of already awake, or at least the recognition of awareness. You can do the exploration from that place. Mm-hmm. And the more that we sort of say that to people, the more it starts to sink in, that they're, they're always doing this exploration presently. Yeah. And, and that helps the, the seeking. It helps them not seek into the future, but at the same time, it helps them to go deeper into the exploration of these, these forms of separation. It's an interesting thing. It's kind of paradoxical because, you know, you, what you're saying is that one can have kind of relaxed the desperate seeking mentality uh, so there's not a, a kind of a 
you know, a striving for something that I'm, I'm so far away from me, and yet at the same time appreciate that there's so much more depth and richness yet to be discovered. Those two, those two seem contradictory, but they actually can, can fit together quite nicely. Yeah, they do fit together quite nicely, absolutely. And one thing, we just changing the language in the living relationship stuff, we just say that the one who's seeking is the sense of a deficient self. It's like, that's the thing I kept getting in the sessions with people, is that what they were saying, they were saying, I'm seeking awakening. But if you pull that away, I'm like, why? What is it about you that... And then they would get honest. Well, I mean, frankly, um, I've always felt like I'm, just since my dad said something, or I just have felt inadequate. Well, let's just talk about that, you know. And then so that maybe that sense of inadequacy is why you're chasing enlightenment to begin with as a future thing. Mm-hmm. That changes the discussion and, and focuses on that. That's an interesting point. I never quite thought of it that way. Um, in my own case, I was, you know mega desperate seeker for decades a long time yeah. you know just like Ugh. and uh and from external appearances i may still appear to be you know because i mean i meditate a couple hours a day i talk to people a couple hours a week doing this thing i'm always reading books and whatnot but there's that whole sense of desperate seeker has completely dissolved <laughs> i'm quite content you know yeah. um even though i'm still going through the motions of discovery and and deepening yeah. and so on but I, I can definitely relate to what you said about the sense of inadequacy and feeling of weakness and lack and uh, you know it was very organic I mean it was very it wasn't just a mental concept there was definitely something in my mentality and my wiring that was um, I don't know neurotic is the right word, right word but just um, that needed healing you know that needed kind of re- resolution and, and I think that resolution has come slowly over the years and there's probably more to be resolved yeah same, same with me you know the desperate seeking is over um, but the expiration is ongoing yeah yeah that's nice um, so I have your book here in front of me on my iPod which keeps my iPad which keeps putting itself to sleep um, but um, there's all kinds of interesting titles to your chapters I wonder if any of these titles could be like a springboard into a discussion of a particular facet of the book like uh, and I don't know if you have your table of contents in front of you but um, if you want I'll kind of read some of the titles of the of the chapters or or what yeah? sure sounds good okay so like um Let's just kind of go through each one, and, and if you feel like um, not saying much about a particular one, just say a sentence or two and go on to the next, but others you might re- want to really go into. So, for instance, the first chapter is the unfindable self. Yeah, so the unfindable inquiry is the basis for all that. There's three inquiries in the book. Mm-hmm. The, the unfindable inquiry, the boomerang, and the panorama. Mm-hmm. So the unfindable is just the basic inquiry that's in, that's is the basis of all three inquiries and that's where i actually look to someone and say can you find the person that's unlovable mm-hmm. and i take them through the words and the pictures and the feelings and sensations so it's really you could do that on any object you could do it on uh, i've done it with people on the fear of death fear of non-existence I do a lot of that the one who's going to die the one who's suffering the one who has cancer um and also all the deficiency stories like the I'm imperfect, I'm inadequate, I'm unheard, I'm unacknowledged, the loser, the, the weird person, uh, you know, everybody has those core stories. 
So you could use the unfindable on any of that, and you could also use it on someone else. You could try to, the whole thing about the lack of objectivity is that if I sit and talk about my friend and think that I'm actually talking about my friend the way he really is, I'm missing the fact that there are words and pictures here that have to do with conditioning, my memory of that experience with him. So my memory of my experience with my friend is imprinted here with particular words and which are interpretations and pictures which come from a certain angle and then feelings and sensations that are so if I had if it was a painful experience I might look at my friend and talk about him and there might be pain in my body and, and I might be thinking I just see him the way that he really is when I don't when I'm seeing it I'm feeling my own my own pain mm-hmm. um, and so that's what caught that's what keeps long-term resent, resentments going on is that we kind of think that we're looking objectively when we're we're not aware of the pain that's coming up with his words and pictures. So you could do the unfindable on someone else. You could try to find that person. So you could say, well, he's an a-hole. Are those words the person? Right. Uh, and then, yeah, those words are the person because I can feel it right here, so it must be true. And then so just relaxing, letting the feeling be there in the space is that feeling your friend you know and so it's just and then it helps just sort of undo the resentment or whatever it is but basically the unfindable can be done on anything person place event even on light enlightenment things like that it's funny uh, I have this little political mailing list that I forward stuff to that I find of interest and and there, there are some couple of people on the list that are, that are like at the extreme ends of the political spectrum, you know, conservative and liberal. And I'll send something out about Obama, for instance, and I'll get feedback from both ends uh, about the very same article. And 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 they they have completely polar opposite perspectives on the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it, it's funny. And there's such conviction sometimes when when people do this sort of thing. Uh, yeah. So adamant about one's the truth of one's vi- one's personal perspective. Right. And, and you know, an avoidance of being absolutistic, I wouldn't say, well, I have no view. You know, right. I would, because when I will go, most likely go vote in November, and I'll have a view. Yeah, but the way that this work can work in that is just because we often, you know, like if you and I have like a disagreement about who Obama is, we could both do the unfindable on it and find out that that we can't find Obama as something separate from our thoughts, feelings, mm-hmm. and sensations. And that frees up the to be right, and then we can still go vote. You know, yeah. that's the paradox of it all. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, and there's, they talk these days about how much um, polarity there is in the political world in, in the United States in particular. The, the, the two sides can't talk to each other. They can't accomplish anything in Congress and so on because yeah. there's this sort of adamant... Um, Certainty of one's the rightness of one's perspective, particularly on one side, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, you know, if that could be kind of relaxed a bit, and you know, one could see that the reality is much more multifaceted than one's own view, it could, even on that level, could make the gears um, mesh more smoothly. Well, I mean, when you talked about the practical benefit of all this, that's one right there. Mm-hmm. Is that. If we have, if, if we, we live in a system where the system is divided into Democrats and Republicans, and they both think they're right, and they both think that they see reality the way it is, obviously it would be some benefit to deconstruct that and yeah. so that they open up to 
to the different the different facets. I mean that that if you're into worldly things at all, some people say just forget it all. It's all you know. But to me, that's a lot where the juice is. is yeah. To see the possibility here. There's a line from Dylan. He says, "You're right from your side, and I'm right from mine." Yeah. <laughs> but I, art and musicians seem to like say all these lines that are so great. You know, you yeah. like, that when I to that song. But yeah. Yeah, I forget which song that was, but, um, and so anyway, this uh, my iPad went to sleep again. But um, this thing about the unfindable self. So what you're saying is that you know when one concretizes a conception of what one is or what somebody else is and and you know if they actually look deeply enough to to try to locate that thing which they're so sure of as a concrete little entity they're not going to find it they're not going to find it right not if they do it right right you know they're not going to find it and what they what they will find if they go deep enough is some pain that they were maybe trying to avoid and trying to stay sort of in the their viewpoint about when because that's what really fuels the political debates it's 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 not really just the viewpoint it's how passionate or how angry i am and that's comes from pain you know that's that's just human pain mm. um that's why you see the people getting so excited on tv and the, on the you know on the on the when they're debating each other or out in the streets you know it's not because they just think they have the right viewpoints because they feel it, you know. And so we don't usually get into the body like that and, and try to find the self in that. But when you yeah. do, and you, a lot of it's just based because I'm in pain, and you let that pain be as it is, it does clear things away. Really yeah, the, the vision comes to mind of people at a town hall meeting screaming, you know, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, this, there's definitely yeah, yeah. That's that's perfect for this kind of thing. Which, just, which for the non-Americans is a government program, by the way. <laughs> um, okay, great. So uh, let's move along here. So un- we talked about unfindable a little bit. Uh, we have the deficient self in relationship, and we also have the boomerang and pan- panorama inquiry. Or can those all be lumped together in this whole unfindable kind of um, topic? Y- yeah. The, the, uh, you want to elaborate a bit on some of those? Sure. The deficient self is just uh, the word that I'm using to explain that core part of one story that at the very basis says there's something wrong with me. Hmm. And some people are more conscious than others of, of it. Some people are very conscious of it, like they can hear the thoughts all the time. And others aren't so conscious of it, but it comes out in relationship. So they don't know why they keep getting tripped up with their wife. They don't know exactly why but they know they do, mm-hmm. and they think it's her fault completely, you know, that kind of thing. So the deficient self would just be like, a, again, an ongoing story or more than one story from childhood on that just basically says, I'm not good enough, I'm unloved, unlovable, imperfect, weak, powerless. And most of the time, we don't ever talk about this with each other. So we don't ever say, hey, hey Rick, how are you doing? How's your deficiency story? You know? <laughs> Oh, I suck. I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I'm, I'm weak. I'm powerless. <laughs> Is it a, we talk about other things to yeah. like the way. How are you? Are you miserable too? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm totally. Yeah, I'm like Godfrey's actually. <laughs> You know what comes to mind as you said that just now is that um, it's the old paradox thing again. If you go deep enough, of course, you discover that, as you're saying in your practice here, that there is no. Um, deficient self that can be identified and in fact you realize that there's there, you're something much bigger than this small weak thing you thought you were 
and and if you really take that to its limits that bigger thing is the you know the intelligence that governs the universe you know the vast cosmic awareness that's what you are but as reflectors of that as individual expressions of that there can be all sorts of weaknesses and in inadequacies and imperfections and and ways in which that is not really very clearly reflected um so it's not entirely true to say that there isn't uh, deficiency and, and weakness and so on. It's just that that's not essentially what you are. Yeah, that's the way I'm saying it. Because I'll never, as far as I know, I'll never like to say be a world-class pianist. Right. So, I, so if I'm sitting next to somebody who's a great piano player, it, relatively speaking, I'm definitely deficient in that way. Mm-hmm. You know? But it goes to identity. Like, yeah. like, yeah, that self that feels like it's intrinsically deficient is the unfindable thing. So relatively speaking, you know, you might be better than at me than uh, whatever, or I might be better than you just in terms of comparison. But I think that's really not where people suffer. I think they suffer with the sense of I, that's, this is what I am. Uh, because of this, I intrinsically am deficient. That's who I am as a person. Yeah, and that's what gets up, gets uprooted in the inquiry. And it may seem a little um, metaphysical or intellectual, but look deeply enough, and you are the world class piano player. You are the the great yeah. baseball player. You know, you you are the the murderer who just got sent to jail. You know, we're all those things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> my, my my wife just said, "Geez, who are you interviewing?" <laughs> 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 I'm interviewing every man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of it. That's what you start to see in the inquiry. It's all a mirror. It's all a reflection of, of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So um, now we're getting to parts of the book here which I hadn't read yet. Um, and obviously most of the people listening haven't read any of these parts. So you have a chapter called Perfectionism. What's that about? Uh, it's just with meeting with people, um, again, in private session, who were constantly trying to change and improve all the circumstances in their life and continuously unable to, to make everything right. Like, it's a, it was a lifetime of trying to improve and change everything, and it just seemed like it was a pattern going on. And I said, well, okay, using the, this is how the boomerang works with the deficiency. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is you're, you're pointing outward, you know, so if you're trying to change somebody, you just turn the finger towards you and say, what is that person or circumstance mirroring back about you? And so it's a question... A lot of people don't ask that question very directly. But once you ask the question, you say, the perfectionist started to tell me, well, actually, I'm imperfect. That's what's at the heart of this. I've always felt like I'm inadequate. And so see if we can find that self. See if we can find the self that's inadequate. Take them through the process. So with the perfectionist, all the focus, like with everybody else, is usually outward. I'm trying to change everything. So we say... Instead of focusing out on this person or thing you're trying to change, just what is that person or thing mirroring back about who you are? And at first, there's lots, often lots of deflection, like, well, you know, I don't know, or I'm not afraid, or, but if she would just change, I've been trying to, you know, it's like, it's like an addiction going outward. So we just say, okay, but give it a name. And then they would say, imperfect, so I'm inadequate. If I could, if I could not feel inadequate anymore, I probably wouldn't have as much problem with everybody and everything else. I would be trying to perfect everything. Because people see that the reason we're trying to perfect everything out here is so it mirrors back that I'm okay. I'm actually, I'm okay. Finally. Yeah, you know, when you said that, what came to mind was a parent who, let's say, wants their kid to become a doctor, 
and they're really like adamant that my kid has to become a doctor. The kid wants to become an artist, you know, that's his talent, that's his, his that's his passion. But the the parents are kind of pushing him to go to medical school. Why is that? Is it really out of concern for the kid, or is it to kind of like fulfill some deficiency that they feel in themselves? Yeah, exactly. Or stage moms, you know, the push, push, push because they didn't quite go as far in dance as they wanted to when they were ten years old or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so once we get people to, to point back and give a name to whatever's doing all the perfecting, and they say, I'm an inadequate self, we, we take them through it. Let's see if you can find that inadequate self. And we look at the words and the pictures one by one. And eventually we get into the body where a lot of that fuel is for that. And that's where people tend not to want to go at first because it feels uncomfortable down there. It feels painful when I really sit with this. Yeah. But as they sat with it, we asked the question about, is that feeling the inadequate self? How about that sensation? Then they can't find it, and suddenly the conditioning that's trying to change everything around you relaxes. When you, when you can't find the inadequate, imperfect self, so all of a sudden you don't see anything really wrong outside yourself. And that's, that's something that's really nice for someone who's been operating on the need to change and perfect everything all the time. Okay, so we've been going through your book, and um, the next chapter we get to is a chapter about ambition. What's that all about? Um, these are basically just, there's nothing particularly special about the chapter titles except for they're just like movements that we see in our life, and mm -hmm. so they're mm -hmm. things that I see in private sessions a lot. Mm -hmm. Like people will, um, people will contact me around... Like they're not, they, they haven't quite completed what they personally want in the world. And so they're very driven towards that. Mm. And so we look at, you know, it, it, with a boomerang, the boomerang is just a way of taking any object out there, person, place, thing, even something like future success, which would be, would be one way to look at ambition. So you're looking at an object called your future success. What does that mirror back to you? What self is here in that relationship to future success? And, because so, all the focus is often on the future. I'm trying to get somewhere. So if you just say, well, what, who, what is that? It's trying to get somewhere. Give it a name. People might say, well, whatever they say, I'm not quite good enough yet. That, um, that as by myself, as myself, or whatever this is, it's not complete. There's something missing. And so, so then we just look at, so we, then we try to find the self that's not complete, or whatever it is, or be driving that. And when they can't find it, a lot of the personal ambition starts to fall away. Mm -hmm. The personal ambition is the ambition that's derived from that sense of lack that's trying to get somewhere personally. And then, of course, life goes on. Creating goes on. What you're interested in goes on. But the, there's real suffering around ambition when you look at it. Mm -hmm. And so when people can move in the world and move in what they want to do, actually, like really follow their heart, but not without, the, but without that, that that coming from that sense of I'm, I'm someone who at the very core lacks something. Nice. So like you were saying earlier, you know, seeking, uh, spiritual seeking can be a sense of, can be driven by a sense of personal lack or deficiency. And I guess what you're saying is that that same syndrome can manifest as political ambition or business ambition or any any sort of ambition you know my kid has to be the greatest you know football player or whatever uh, all trying to compensate for a, 
um, a sense of deficiency that one hasn't clearly looked at. Yeah, it could be any of those. It could even be spiritual ambition. Teachers mm -hmm. deal, you know, people, because the old conditioning comes back up. It's sort of before you know it, something's running the show, mm -hmm. you know. Um, people have shared that with me. I've experienced that early on. Not so much now because of these inquiries. But, yeah, it could be any kind of ambition. I think it scares people because they think, if I don't have this ambition, I'll have no purpose in life. And, and really, when you, when you pare down and you see through, when you try to find the self that lacks, or whatever that is, and you, and, you, and you more and more see through it, no matter where it shows up, what, you, what I find is that people actually start moving in a way that is more in, in line with what they really want, with what they like authentically want in their life, and it feels right, it feels better, and they're not as attached to the outcome of that. Their whole identity is not wrapped up into where this is all going. Mm-hmm whatever it is interesting there's a line in the Gita which says you have control over action alone never over its fruits uh, live not for the fruits of action nor attach yourself to inaction and uh, so it's just what you're saying that you know um, and I also believe what you're saying here is that a person who is freed from this sort of deficiency based type of ambition is by no means uh, passive or apathetic, they they may be dynamically engaged in accomplishing things, of, uh, but it's more, it's not uh, based on a, a personal emptiness. It's it's based more on a kind of a attunement with one's dharma, to use that phrase. Yeah, I mean, just to give you an example, what some people don't know about me is my first love beyond the spiritual talk is really music. Mm -hmm. That's what I love. I love creating music. Are you a guitarist? Uh, uh, keyboard, guitar, bass, singing, mm -hmm. all that. And when I was younger, it was very much became a part of my identity that I had to become successful as a musician in order to be somebody. And because that was, it's always been something. So the, the desire to create, the really authentic desire, that, that creative impulse, got wrapped up into Scott's not good enough. Mm. Somehow I got so enmeshed that I actually stopped enjoying creating. So through doing these inquiries and just working through this kind of stuff is like, I've actually create probably three times more music now than ever. So somebody might say, well, you're more ambitious than ever. And I'm like, well, you know what? No. Actually, yeah. it feels different than that, you know. Not that it wouldn't be nice to get music out and play it, but it's just, it feels energetically different, mm -hmm. what we're talking about here, when yes. you force the deficiency self from that more and more, you know. That's nice. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and it's worth addressing, I think, because spirituality traditionally has sometimes had the, the connotation of passivity, you know, the yogis just sitting there doing nothing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, in, in fact, there's, in India, there's a bit of a fear of it in some circles because of the tradition of just that, you know, yogis who just sit around and beg and people who want to be productive and dynamic and so on have kind of tended to reject their own tradition. But it's... Um, doesn't necessarily work that way. That's that is, you know, it's accomplishment and uh, achievement are very much compatible with full-fledged spirituality. It's just a matter of everything being in the proper proportions. And, and yeah, I think people, mainly it's the seeking thing. Everything gets all kinds of movements in the world get lumped into seeking, and many of them are. Yeah. You know, many of them are come, come from the sense of you know I'm incomplete. I'm a person living in time. That's who my real identity is. But then there comes a place where I think more and more you see that movement, 
and creation and that stuff less and less comes from that. It comes from that impulse that you can't describe. It, it, you know, and that's really to me one of the things about awakening that's so beautiful and juicy is that, yeah, I thought too, and I guess I could just sit here all day. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's perfectly fine and pleasant and, and just do nothing. Like, go sit on my lawn with the lawn chair. There's nothing wrong with that either. Mm-hmm. Or just sort of in formless absorption. I mean, that's all that's there. But at the same time, like we were saying, is that form is not a mistake. And it's not a mistake that stuff is created. It's not like it's created, oh, that was a mistake. Let's put that away. You know, what if it's not really like that? What if, what if the possibility is different that when that sense of deficiency or that separation gets seen through and you're willing to look at it as it comes up, then and then watch them life unfold, whatever. Mm-hmm. And of course, it may unfold by sitting on, on your yard. I mean, for people, some people, it's like I'm not doing a damn thing. If that's the way you're wired, I mean, you know, R- Ramana Maharshi, um, there's no way he was going to go out and start a business. You know, it was his tendency to just sit and be and yeah. and so on. But you and I and most people are naturally inclined. It's our tendency to be more engaged with the world. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah. And not to be made feel bad about that. That's the whole deficiency thing. Not to not to make not to feel bad about that. You know, that's the point. If one moves naturally in a certain way, mm-hmm. whether it is to continue playing the violin or uh, planting gardens or running a business, if that's the impulse. And if one is clear and open to look at any kinds of sneaky little uh, stories that are coming in there that are running the show, you know, I think yeah. the world oyster really. The Gita, again, has all these verses about the importance of performing one's own dharma, whatever it is, you know. Um, dharma meaning that action which one is naturally inclined to perform and in which it's most evolutionary for one to perform. And that the dhar- there's cautions against trying to assimilate or perform the dharma of another, you know. You should just, like, like you said earlier, yeah. authenticity, honesty, being who you are, doing what you do, you know, and not trying to model yourself after somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, but, but that's what, I think the word authentic, it's kind of an overused word is really pointed to for you. <laughs> you know, you know when you're doing something that's authentic. Mm-hmm. And you also know when you strip somebody else off trying to follow somebody else. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't, you know, it's not really following what's in your deepest heart. Mm-hmm. Now, your next two chapters, um, bullying and abuse, are kind of a hot topic these days. There's a lot of awareness with Lady Gaga and Oprah and various people about bullying, you know, and movies about it and everything, and it's on the news all the time. So is that the kind of bullying you're talking about, um, or what? Yeah, it could be school bullying, but also workplace bullying. It could be any kind of bullying, even spiritual bullying, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat you over the head with my concepts. Make you feel, <laughs> yeah. you know, Jesus is the only way. <laughs> right. Accept my God, or I'll send you to him. <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Accept my bullshit of peace, or there will be war. Right. Um, yeah. So any kind of bullying, because the focus is always outward, usually when when the bullying is going on, and and when the person's being bullied, there is a sense of deficiency that's being created. Often, mm-hmm. I must really be not good enough, I must be a loser, but often the focus is on the bull, the bully, like what the bully's doing. If both sides, and I know this is way outside the realm of possibility at this time, but if both sides actually say, what is this, my bullying this person, what is it mirroring back about me, what's at the deepest core of myself, the deficiency, 
and then the one being bullied does the same thing. I think a lot of people will find there's a sense of separation there. And more, more specifically, there's a sense of deficiency. That's what's causing it. Well, you know what? I wouldn't say that it's so far outside the realm of possibility because it's it is as I say a hot topic, and I bet you you could if you wanted to. I bet you, you could go to the local high school and offer your services as a counselor and say, hey, I have this this technique which I think could really help if you've got some kind of bullying situation going on. I'd like to sit down with the bully and the bully e, and uh, you know, and work through a little process and see if it helps the situation. I bet you could get some people to take you up on that. I think I think we, I think we could. I mean, I think we're. You know, it's just I was bullied as a kid, and, and when I watched that movie, Bully, and they were trying to tell the kids, you need to go tell the counselor, and and you know, but a lot of times you tell the counselor, you tell the parents, and it doesn't deal with the pain, and it doesn't actually sometimes deal with the bullying. So it's like, and then we could send people to therapy, and hopefully that does some some good, but you know, anything that's going to help pierce through what's actually going on there. And I think these inquiries could do that. Could do that, among other things. Which, why wouldn't we try? You know? I think they're good. And some of these thirty-five people you've trained, and others you may train. Yeah, you, know, you might suggest to them that they approach some school authority and see if they'd, you know, like to have them uh, help out. Yeah, could, I think it's a great idea. Could be a neat thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I hope this is uh, interesting for people. The way we're kind of just going, you know linearly through the book uh, I, I'm finding it kind of interesting but um, you know feel free to, to go off on tangents if you want to too you know so you have a, a chapter here about overcom- overcompensation yeah overcompensation is just if you, if you look it up in the dictionary it just means using the mind as a way of avoiding pain mm-hmm. so um, what, what, what I train all the facilitators to do is just to watch how like you and I are, are talking here just in a discussion. But when we're doing inquiry, it's not really intellectual. And so, but the mind will still sort of want to ride back on the intellectual train or go back into a lots of storytelling in the middle of the inquiry. So overcompensating, or the, the, tra- the facilitators are trained to spot when that's happening and to bring back someone to the core question, which is, are those words the deficient self? Or, or is that feeling the deficient self and by keeping them on track it just keeps the mind from distracting so it doesn't have to feel what's here mm-hmm. and that's what I think a lot of a lot of some uh, thinking is about it's a way of sort of creating a nightmare for yourself and then not being with the pain that was created there and just sort of going back into the nightmare and so just by getting people into the body I mean down all the way to the stomach the chest keeps them from overcompensating where they're trying to, again, trying to talk about themselves or talk about what's right or true instead of look at who they take themselves to be in a certain situation. Another uh, overcompensating is like, so we talked about this a little bit, you and I have before, is just the, 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 the it's, I understand why people say I've awakened or awakening has happened here. But if you look at that, Unless it's just sort of spoken just as a way of communicating with you, it's really kind of a BS thing because, because for this reason, why does it matter? You know, the, re- the reason that it matters often is because that identity looks a lot better than my deficiency story. And that's what overcompensation is. It's a way of saying, it's, it's like when people 
you've met them in your life when you know that somewhere underneath there there's a sense of unworthiness but what they do is try to tell you that they're worthy mm-hmm. in di- different ways they're trying to tell you and it's just like a cover-up job and you're kind of like what's going what's really going on there and not that calling oneself awakened is always overcompensation but once you get to the root of the reason you find out what's there underneath that and you, and you deal with any deficiency I find that the calling oneself awakened or standing on that plateau is less and less interesting. You know? So do you think this is pretty common? I mean, because there are a lot of people around these days proclaiming a, a, you know, awakening. Um, and, you know, and many people I interview, you know, they'll tell the story of their awakening. And it seems genuine and sincere. But are, are you just saying it can be kind of uh, used as a... Uh, not a crutch, but a, a way of kind of ego aggrandizement or something. Aren't I cool? I'm the awakened guy, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah I think not for everybody. Absolutely mm-hmm. not for everybody. But a lot of people go through that, you know, just naturally because it's just the mind overcompensating for something. If you've always felt like you weren't quite good enough all your life, and all of a sudden you have this awakening experience, yeah. that's that's a good story. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so just just when I'm working with people it's just to help them be diligent to look at what's really going on under that if you just pull the awakened identity aside mm-hmm. is it, you know if you really hear with your experience what's showing up and is there any sense of any kind of thing left over there from childhood and then if you deal with that I find that people are less interested in that as some sort of inherent like I've really I just feel like it's not that interesting after a while you know, some, you know that's just my take on it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if I were to ask you point blank are you awakened what would you say yes okay uh, I, you know, <laughs> no I was trying to play with you uh, I don't even know what that means frankly I, I don't know what it means Definitely stuff has fallen away for me, tremendous amounts of stuff. And mm-hmm. if I were to compare, I'd be saying, yeah, this is, this, is, this is really clear for me. At the same time, I'm very aware that life is an exploration, that in the next moment something could pop up. And that's the juice I get to look at that. And, and carrying around that identity that I'm awakened, it's like, a, it's like too much. It's, it's like something more than what's needed here, you know. And so, conventionally, I don't even know how to answer the question, really. I, that's, I that's a good answer, actually. That's pretty much the answer I would give. Uh, and people, yeah. people do ask me that sometimes. And I, I just have to give this sort of wishy-washy relative kind of answer. Like, geez, you know, well, compare me to 40 years ago. And, and yeah, big time. But yeah. compare me to 20 years from now, and I'm probably a total dullard. You know, yeah. there's, just, there's, just, there's been huge transformation and awakening and whatnot. But they're not. It still seems to be a work in progress. There's there's ever greater clarification, and and there is something here which never changes. But the clarity uh, with which that can be appreciated, the degree to which that can be embodied, um, seems to know no end. Yeah, and there's something here that never changes. You know, when you recognize that, it's just always there, and it never changes. Yeah. And so there's not much more to say about it, actually. <laughs> Other, if it's really recognized that it's always there and it never changes, yep. unless you're pointing for somebody, it's not something sort of to land on a whole lot. And instead, you kind of see, well, well, and all this other stuff is changing, and that's interesting, mm-hmm. too. You know, I don't know. That's just the because how much how much can we talk about this that never changes? 
it would get pretty boring. <laughs> right. Hey, Scott, has it changed yet? <laughs> no, nope, still the same? Okay. How about now? <laughs> right, unless unless you're, you're pointing somebody, you know. Yeah. Um, well, you know, a lot of people haven't even recognized that there is that thing that never changes. And right. so that's that could be a big aha for them yeah. to uh, to recognize that. big. But, but then what? <laughs> right. and, and most of the time when I'm doing a talk, I'm pointing to that which never changes. Mm-hmm. Because people coming there are looking for that, and it's an important recognition. And then once they they sort of recognize and sort of stabilize more and more, then we get to talk about these other things, like you know that you and I are chatting about. Yeah, <laughs> I just uh, just remember this cartoon I saw the other day. This is it's called. It was entitled "The Spiritual Family," and there's this husband and wife sitting there in lotus meditating, and the two kids are sitting behind them meditating, and the, and the little boy kind of is, has his eyes open, and he says, "Are we there yet?" <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay, okay. So uh, let's see. So we've talked about. I, I, I just want to interject to say that you know all this talk that we're doing about Scott's book and uh, the various types of inquiry, the different kind of different flavors on the same theme. Really, um, just want to kind of remind everybody that um, we're kind of presenting this. Scott, Scott's presenting it in the context of it being a very useful tool for awakening, for spiritual realization. It, it's. I, I, I've actually heard, kind of like secondhand, that you've gotten some flack from people for not being non-dual enough, or you know, kind of like abandoning sh- the non-dual ship, uh, you know, in, in getting into all this stuff. Uh, someone yes. even called you schizophrenic, I think. Um, so, I, has there been very much of that? Have you gotten a little uh, razzing uh, from people? Just here and there, just here yeah. and there, and and to be expected in certain circles, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like I say. It's like if you really sit with this life, you start you start really wanting to do what feels right and true for you. You don't try to please anybody. You know, you're not right. trying. That's not why you're doing it. That would become from deficiency anyway. I want people to like me. Mm-hmm. I want to teach in a way that, that pleases everybody. But instead, I just want to do what feels right and true for me and my own experience, and I go with that. Yeah. No, and it's great. I think you're doing a great service, and. And I think you're actually probably, you know, facilitating pe- the the kind of non-dual spiritual awakening that even a, a non-dual fundamentalist would appreciate, you know, because uh, I think there can be we can be handicapped by a lot of this stuff, and if unless it's dealt with or looked at or explored properly, it can be a real, um, you know, sea anchor in terms of our progress. Yeah, and and then also make no mistake that the unfindable is a non-dual inquiry. It's like, can you find the self you take yourself to be? So that yeah, right yeah. there, yeah, right, yeah, good. Okay, so we don't necessarily have to go through every chapter in the book piece by piece by piece, but um, you know, we're about halfway through, and and you have some others here helping peacemaking, abandonment, control, hiding, seeking, anxiety, envy, jealousy, the middle way, and relationship. Um, so taking that from the top, um, would you like to dwell a bit on some of these? Um, I mean, they're all basically just movements in, that we find in, in human life. I mean, you know, all of those, seeking, uh, peacemaking. Peacemaking can often come from a, core, a deficiency story. Um, Meaning everything has to be nicey-nicey and you want to just kind of like never rock, rock the boat and, and just but – it, but it tends to be repressive or, or kind of yeah. hide, hide stuff that really ought to be looked at. Is that what you're saying? But, yeah, like it often – because like if, if, if there's a real peacemaking tendency, great, that, that, that's actually helpful for the world for the most part. 
Mm-hmm. But if it's coming from a sense of avoidance of conflict, because there's real pain there that doesn't want to come to the surface. So yeah. if, if somebody disagrees with me, or there's conflict around me, it's like, oh, there's that pain. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta put that pain down. Everybody, be okay, be at peace here. Okay, now I don't have to feel my pain. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that shows up for some people. But all of those chapters are really just different movements that we all know: jealousy, envy. They we all know in our lives. And that, frankly, do continue on for a lot of people, even after they have that recognition of what's never changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you really call the, the spade the spade, so to speak, you, and people get honest, you find that these little things are there. So some will be interested in inquiring into that, and some wouldn't, you know, and I am interested. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's cool. I mean, this, I, I keep thinking of ways in which this could be applied as, we're t- as we speak, and I, I, I am sure you've thought of them too. I mean, you could go into prisons, for instance, and, and if you really wanted to, I mean, there's only one of you, and you, can't, you can only do so much, but you know, people who are kind of trained in this pr- procedure could go in and meet with opposing gang members in prisons uh, or um, go to Israel and, and you know, meet uh, with some, uh, some Palestinians and some Israelis, you know, that, or to go to India, Pakistan, or, you know, there's so many situations like this where these, where these clashing groups, which with a little bit of self-reflection could, you could de- defuse the whole situation. However, you know, I mean, some of these, th- some of these people are so entrenched and so kind of hardened in that tendency that there may not be a readiness yeah, or a willingness. That's that's the whole thing, isn't it? It's just like there's sometimes not a readiness in the spiritual community. There's not always a readiness outside of it, like in these other places, mm-hmm. you know, to look. It's, I think that's the, the best word is the readiness or the openness to look. Well, once you have that, it can unravel a lot of the, those conflicts and stuff in, in, in all kinds of scenarios, like employee and coworker relationships, employee, boss, husband, wife, mother, child. Neighbor, neighbor, uh, nation, nation. Um, yeah, so it's it's available there in all of that, and that's what's so great about it is that you can take the inquiries and it, it's adaptable to all those situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I sort of have a feeling that this could be um, it could be more institutionalized uh, and made more broadly available, and, and it's, it's the kind of thing one could talk about in a in a uh, college or high school classroom and and that could bring people who would otherwise never consider it to a point of readiness quite easily you know and and you know you could probably sit down with a couple of volunteers who had never who weren't on the you know dwelling on non dual spiritual stuff uh, by habit and actually make quite a bit of progress with them yeah, if they I mean, if they were cooperative yeah i think so i mean some of the, sometimes the first night of my talk and this is usually with people who are already interested in the subject. Yeah, that's why they There's always some, some that aren't. But this, this, the talk that I do is more like a, just a basic discussion. I'm not doing any inquiry the first time. I'm just saying, hey, look, if you look back at your life, you've been seeking a lot, try, you know, trying to fix and control things outside yourself, in conflict with this person, judging that person, criticizing, jealous, envy. All of that's been going on, but have you ever stopped to ask what what is all that I'm seeing mirroring back about me? And, and hasn't there been this story all your life that there's something not quite right about you? And maybe what if, what if that's what's doing a lot of this outward pointing and seeking? And if so, if you were to actually see through that, if that's not really who you are, wouldn't that actually change your life 
on this level, on this outward level. People normally could hear that and they could say, well, that just makes sense, actually. You know? Yeah. And then maybe be open to look at that point. Maharishi always used to say, the world is as we are. And uh, there was some Sanskrit phrase, but I forget what it was. Um, yeah, so... I'm sort of running out of questions here, but um, I, you know, I found this. This is kind of a refreshing discussion, I think, because um, it. Um, I think you're you're doing something. You know, I sometimes hear teachers such as Adyashanti or various teachers saying, "Well, you know, you might want to do some therapy. It might be good for you." Um, but, I mean, if a person hears that advice, they think, well, where do I turn? You know, there's all kinds of therapists. How do I find someone that's going to really understand, you know, me or, or have the right kind of spiritual inclination to be able to relate to me and so on? And this seems to be something which is, you know, based, which evolved out of your own kind of non-dual realization and which is tailor-made for uh, somebody who has that inclination and and realizes that there's definitely some housekeeping inner housekeeping to do yeah i think i think the inquiry the way it's built up has the psychological component and the non-dual aspects of it because you're actually trying to find a self so it's a realization of myself mm-hmm. but it has a certain tag on it that's very specific to you it's like the trunk of the tree so if you feel like you're someone who's been powerless all your life your tree is going to be made of all those branches yeah. So in therapy, we might deal with those branches one at a time, but here we'll we'll go straight to the root of it over and over again, and as we do, the branches you know begin over time to not kick your butt so much or just fall away. Very important point and good analogy, one that I was kind of brought up with that you you know if you want to really benefit a tree, you you don't just t- attend to the branches and leaves, you you water the root, and then the whole yeah. tree tree will be nourished. Right. Yeah. That's great. great. So, uh, anything more you'd like to say, Scott? Um, other than just, uh, I'm really busy these days, and but we we've got again we've got there's about 35 people out there that are training. So just to let people know, um, you can go to the livingrealization.org website mm-hmm. to find them. You can also go to the Facebook page called Relationship and the Unfindable Self, hmm. and the facilitators are in there. Plus, if you look on the web and you just Google Unfindable Self or Living Realization, you'll see the various websites of these facilitators. So, Why don't you send me a link to all these places, and I'll um, put them on batgap.com when I put up your interview, and then people can go directly to them. And then they can either get in touch with you or with one of your facilitators. Incidentally, I noticed that your your rates are very reasonable. You know, if you have a private consultation with people, it's like fifty dollars an hour or something, and that's that's really cool. I mean, you know, there are people whom I've interviewed who might be charging two two fifty an hour or something, and um, that's out of the, out of reach for many people. So, obviously, you're not in this for the money. <laughs> if I was in it for the money, I would have remained as an attorney. Yeah, good point. <laughs> but um, but that's another thing is we never turn anybody away due to finance. So if somebody can pay zero, that's an important thing to let people know. Mm-hmm. We, we do that all the time. So that nobody that should never be the reason that someone doesn't reach out. It's the way we look at it. That's great. Yeah, and that sort of bolsters your reputation as a very kind of <clears throat> no-nonsense, down-to-earth guy, which uh, a lot of people appreciate. 
Thanks, fact, I went to this little retreat about a month ago with Sharon Landreth down in Missouri, and there was this fellow there. He said, wow, I just saw this guy up in Boulder named Scott Killaby. He was, he was so real, you know. It's like I was ta- it was like I was talking to a buddy or something, you know. And I said, oh, yeah, Scott, I'm going to interview him again in about a month. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wholesome. It's a healthy way to be. There's so much hoopla around spirituality sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I do know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for, for having me. I always enjoy being here. You're a great interviewer, and I've been watching a lot of the stuff you do. It's, it's awesome. Oh, great. Thanks. Let me make a few wrap-up points. Um, so, obviously, I've been talking with Scott Killaby, and uh, he uh, I'll be linking to his several websites and Facebook pages and stuff. Um, you've, if you've been watching this interview, I don't have to repeat what we've just said, which is, you know, Scott's available for consultations, and he's he's devised a, a sort of a, a, an inquiry practice, which seems to be very helpful for many people. So if you're feeling called to look into that, it's easy to do so. Um, this interview is part of an ongoing series, which um, I, I do a new one each week. Next week I'll be speaking with Nirmala, who's uh, married to Gina Lake, whom I interviewed a couple months ago. And uh, if you'd like to subscribe to the series so as to be notified whenever a new one is put up, you can either do that on YouTube, just subscribe to the channel, or go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. There you can sign up for an email newsletter. You'll be notified whenever there's a new one. Uh, You can also subscribe to the podcast there. There's a link, and they'll automatically download into iTunes, and you can put them on your your iPod. And there's also a discussion group there, which is... uh, quite lively sometimes that builds up around each interview. Within each interview, there's a place to you know, make comments and get into a discussion. So participate in that if you like. There's also a Yahoo discussion group, which is lesser known, but there's a link to it from there, and some, many people carry on a conversation there. Um, so that's about it. Oh, there's also a donate button, and um, I definitely have expenses with all of this and spend a lot of time on it. So if you feel inclined to donate... Uh, click on the button. And if you have any trouble with PayPal, just email me. Some people prefer to just send a check because they don't like to do PayPal or whatever. So thank you, Scott, and uh, thank you to those who have been listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.